2: Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwalt.
1: And I'm Eliana Johnson.
2: Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. And Eliana Johnson, there's no, no easy way to go about it. This has been a... When the news is big and the news is emotionally charged, as it has been with the terrorist attack against Israel, it in the news business, it produces some special challenges. And my thoughts have been very much with you, because I know that these are things that are important to you, as they should be to every American, but particularly for Jewish Americans, particularly for people who have been to Israel, for particularly people who have friends there. And so my thoughts and prayers have been very much with you this week, and I'm very happy to be with you.
1: Well, thank you, Chris. And I thought We would do things a little differently this week in that the outbreak of this war on Saturday morning, I just felt, and I have been feeling since then, I found myself just turning to the news constantly. And there's been so much good reporting that it's been... It's been fun to be in the news media and use the news media in this way. And so much good reporting from so many different sources that I thought we would start by highlighting that, which is not usually what we do. Um, So in some ways, it's I think it's great to do this. The other interesting, I think, aspect of this is that when Hamas went into Israel, they... They weren't trying to hide what they were doing in the ways that there are sort of parallels. You know, Germans in the Holocaust very much tried to hide. They were not bringing cameras into concentration camps. And there were American soldiers when they came in. They sort of forced German civilians to, to look at these things. But Hamas was intentionally videotaping and broadcasting these things. And so the way the news media has chosen to use or not use these horrific, some of the images are horrific, but not gruesome. Some of them are horrific and gruesome, yeah. but they wanted the world to see this. And so I think it's interesting to talk about how the media, the news media has chosen to use or not use that.
2: And as a, as a general precept, when you have a story like this, that shows you what the news is for, right? You have a breaking story, you have a developing story, you have a huge story, and it's happening halfway across the world. This is when expert reporting, this is where the having the resources and having the ability to cover these things with open eyes is really valuable. And I think it's good to start on some of the good because there's been a lot of really good coverage.
1: One of the outlets that I wanted to highlight and uh, starting first is Tablet, which is not a mainstream outlet, but intentionally covers Jewish and Mm -hmm. Jewish news and Jewish American culture. And Liel Leibovitz at Tablet has had some wonderful pieces. The first, which we're going to link, is headlined Eyewitness Account of the Rave Massacre. And it's it's actually just several eyewitness accounts. And Liel writes, and this is from Sunday, Sunday evening, I've spent the last 12 hours speaking to Israelis who were at the Supernova Music Festival. Their testimonies, as you you would imagine, are very emotional. At least one broke down mid-conversation and wasn't able to continue his recollection. But the piece, which we will link, is an account of his conversations with these people. And he writes, this is one person's recollection, Some of the lucky ones ran to a nearby wadi, seeking shelter amid the shrubbery. I felt like they were shooting right above our heads, one survivor recalled. I dove into a bush. It felt like the shooting was coming from 180 degrees all around us. I understood we're going to be there for at least a couple of hours, and I had nothing on me, and I was like, the only thing I want is a weapon. I want something to protect us. Eventually, he and his friends, some of them barefoot, decided to risk it and try to reach safety, walking close enough to the road to see it but not so close so that they might be seen i said if we see like army or police cars we're going to the road otherwise we're going to stay away when we saw police and army cars we knew that it's a safe place and there's several more accounts like this definitely worth reading and the other question i think that immediately came to mind at least for me but everybody was asking it, was Israel's supposed to have a vaunted intelligence service. And I highly recommend, I want to get the title of this book, which I have read, Rise and Kill First by Ronan Bergman is a history of the Mossad, which is wonderful. And Ronan Bergman is at The New York Times, and we're going to talk about one of his stories. But how did this happen, and how did Israel not know this was coming? And there was a great Reuters story, how Hamas duped Israel as it planned devastating attack, And it talks about the Hamas preparations for this right in Israel's backyard. And Reuters reports, in one of the most striking elements of their preparations, Hamas constructed a mock Israeli settlement in Gaza where they practiced a military landing and trained to storm it. A source close to Hamas said, adding, they even made videos of the maneuvers. Israel surely saw them, but they were convinced that Hamas wasn't keen on getting into a confrontation, the source said. Meanwhile, Hamas sought to convince Israel it cared more about ensuring that workers in Gaza, a narrow strip of land with more than 2 million residents, had access to jobs across the border and had no interest in starting a new war. Hamas was able to build a whole image that it was not ready for a military adventure against Israel, the source said. And there are a couple of more more pieces on this. Um, and the
2: Times had a good one.
1: The Times had a great one. The Journal writes... Israel was prepared for a different war, and that piece is about Israel's um, pivot to high-tech warfare, and we've seen them use that in Iran, Mm -hmm. where they were doing hacking campaigns. Their special forces are very, very good. So the journal writes, the military had invested in intelligence, cyber, and defensive capabilities to deal with the threat from Hezbollah and Hamas, and blunt the risks of a growing missile arsenal in, in Iran, it deployed Iron Dome in twenty eleven, which which targets short range rockets and invested in developing other systems to tackle long range missiles, and had come to believe that the main threats to security were not essentially extremely low tech ground invasions like the ones the country saw in the nineteen seventies. The other interesting piece, this is also from Tablet, is by the historian Edward Lutvach, who talks who who had a piece in Tablet about the intelligence failure, just titled Israel's Intelligence Failure, and um, he talks about the role of the Hamas workers in, in Israel, and he says, Lutwok, who's advised many world leaders and has a very colorful history, at times it's a little bit difficult to know um, what's true and what's not, but has written many, many books and is a colorful guy, he argues... In this piece, in reality, there's only one way Hamas could have pulled off Saturday's massive surprise by feeding valuable, indeed actionable information to individuals who were Israeli intelligence sources, even though that information allowed the Israelis to destroy rockets before they could be launched against them and achieve other successes. Because the destroyed rockets belong to Islamic Jihad, which is the chief competitor for Hamas and Shia leading to boot, Iran pays the bills. Hamas itself paid no price to thus fill the espionage horizon below which yesterday's attacks were planned. There are techniques that will that with much skill and patience can uncover double agents, but no tricks can detect agents who are reporting as best they can. They can what they actually know and who report enough good intelligence to keep everybody too busy to look for what they do not know. Evidently, Mm -hmm. years of war with Israel and its intelligence service have taught Hamas how to fight them effectively caught by surprise because of errors that allowed Hamas to take the initiative. It is now Israel's turn to act and not just by bombing Hamas headquarters. A new approach altogether is needed with nothing off the table. And that we don't know if it's true, but I thought it was a very interesting theory.
2: Well, and I, I also think the Tom Friedmanification of the way we think about international affairs and global threats. So if what people want to James Carville, it's the economy, stupid. So the, the premise that was put forward for a long time was that the economic suffering of the Palestinian people was the problem and that if that could be rectified, then the, then the conflict between the two groups could be minimized. And I think not just the rest of the world, but obviously the Israeli government leaned into this idea. We've got to create a pathway to economic viability for these people. And in the end, the leadership, the Hamas leadership, was using that as a tool to attack what, the people that they see as, uh, as their tormentors or oppressors. And we saw it with Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. We've seen it with Iran many, many, many times, is that Western nations make assumptions about what motivates political leadership and how uh, these places are supposed to work. And that creates a, a weakness for us in terms of how how prepared we can be uh, when it comes to these threats.
1: That's absolutely true. And one advantage is not the right word. But one aspect of this conflict, I think, is that Israel did believe, like, our problems are in the north. They're not going to come right. from Gaza. But they were acutely aware that this threat was ideological, that these people, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah or Iran, are devoted, are, are ideologically motivated to wipe them off the map and that there isn't like an economic chip you can give them. Or, I mean, they gave Gaza to, you know, they they yanked their people kicking and screaming out of Gaza in 2005, and that did not placate or solve this problem. But I think they did believe that the main threat is not going to come from Gaza, We've pacified it enough and that we just you know they told themselves we just have to mow the grass every so often like they're going to fire rockets and we're going to go mow the grass every so often. Now it's pretty clear they have to completely rip up the turf. But what I think this does reinforce for some Americans a lot of Americans you know like is the ideological nature of this conflict which I think a lot of people had talked themselves into if the Israelis could just get to the negotiating table.
2: I, I think that the media narrative of the past decade has increasingly moved toward the idea of Israel the oppressor state and these put upon people in their suffering may make mistakes from time to time, but it but this is a human rights cause. And that narrative had really gained traction over time, especially as the partisan divide on support for Israel shifted and changed and it became the Republicans that were pro-Israel dominantly and that Netanyahu became a figure of a sort of the Trumpian right. And as 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 the APAC energy and the domestic political alignment on this issue changed, that also was reflected in the coverage because there was a domestic political bias that was reinforcing the international political bias, which, had, which is typically strongly anti-Israel, right? So there's a, there's a U.N. international energy against Israel. And in the United States, support for Israel had been fairly bipartisan over time, right? Support for the, for the Israelis had been strong among Democrats, particularly because Jewish voters were typically Democratic, but Republicans basically were on the same team as that has shifted and Republicans have come to almost universally, we'll get to some of that in a minute, as Republicans have come to almost universally support it, and Democrats driven by the BLM movement and lots of pressure groups on Well, there, on there are real
1: horseshoe politics here yeah. where the far left and the far right are both, they're of a, of a piece on this issue. Yes, And we are seeing that play out. Yeah, as you said, we're going to get to it. But I do think that I've been surprised. I mean, I watched a CNN segment last night and you would have thought you were watching like right-wing television.
0: It's so, Their it's so characterization
1: shocking. of the conflict of, of Hamas, of the atrocities. And I, and I do have some criticisms of it, but I, I was
2: shocked. It When it's this bad, right, when it's this effulgent, there have been a lot of comparisons about 9-11 and how this is like 9-11. I think the, the media comparison to 9-11 is this when it's this bad right so when you're talking about as you said mowing the grass and there's rockets and then there's counter-offensive and there's back and forth it's easy moral equivalency is easy to come by but when somebody does something this intentionally and as you say advertising doing something so intentionally inhumane so monstrous so evil it Shuts the mouths of many of the of the people who want to equivocate and many of the people who want to find that space. And in that way, Israel, there was a brief medium and we're going to talk about these things, but there was a brief moment you could feel at the beginning where the left or that part of the horseshoe uh, was pre budding Israel basically right well we know there's going to be an overreaction here we know there's going to be an overreaction here so we've got to get in there and when that effort was mounted in the American press they did it too soon and as more yeah. horrific images and more horrific stories and very significantly here there are pro- American hostages right
1: there are American hostages and American dead
2: well there are definitely American dead and there are American hostages and when for Americans... Of, and I
1: just saw as we were going, as we were starting to record, it does look like U.S. special forces are, are flying out there to try and rescue these American there hostages. There is
2: no appetite in the United States for anybody taking any Americans hostage. And especially when you have a bunch of craven murderers and terrorists doing it, there's absolutely not. And those folks who tried to pre-butt Israel badly miscalculated.
1: Just to be specific, the Daily Mail is reporting that the U.S. has put special forces on alert to help Israeli forces locate American hostage as hundreds of IDF reservists arrive at JFK to answer Israel's call to fight. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Iranian role, which we're hearing all sorts of different things about. The Wall Street Journal on Sunday evening had a piece, Iran helped plot attack on israel over several weeks the islamic revolutionary guard corps gave the final go-ahead last monday in beirut and the journal with three reporters and a dubai byline mm-hmm. writes that iranian officials met with hamas officials over a series of a number of times in beirut to help plan and greenlight this attack i When I read this, I thought this is a huge problem for the Biden administration, which just unfroze the six billion dollars to Iran. Right. And even over the weekend, they were completely invested in saying not a dollar of this money has been spent, which is true. Um, At the same time, of course, Iran knows the money is coming and it freed them up to do other things with it. And the Biden administration has loosened oil sanctions on them. They've been able to spend more money and do more things since Biden came into office. The source for the journal article is several Hamas operatives. That's who they cite a and then the Times this morning, right before we went to record record, has a piece early intelligence shows Iranian leaders surprised by Hamas attack. U.S. says the information has fueled doubts in the United States that Iran, a longtime supporter of the Palestinian military militant group, played a direct role in the assault. And three American based reporters write, the United States has collected multiple pieces of intelligence that show that key Iranian leaders were surprised by the Hamas attack in Israel. Information that has fueled U.S. doubts that Iran played a direct role in planning the assault, according to several American officials. These key Iranian officials did not know the attack was coming, according to the intelligence. And I basically just wanted to mark these two pieces Mm -hmm. so that we can come back to them because I suspect we're going to learn a lot more about this in the coming weeks. And what what we do know, based on the surprise nature of the attacks over the weekend, was that American intelligence did not know it was coming, right. and Israeli intelligence did not know it was coming, which, to me, makes it sort a little bit risky to rely on American t- intelligence for these stories. It did raise some questions in my mind. So I just wanted to, like, put Uh, bookmark these pieces and come back to them.
2: I I didn't really understand the point of the story, of the time story, because I'm sure there are people inside the Iranian government who were surprised by this. Same.
1: I had the exact same
2: that I'm sure that there were, just as I'm sure there were people inside the Japanese government who were surprised by Pearl Harbor, because when you're doing something like this, you don't hold all-staff meetings. You don't send an all-staff email to talk about it. And it goes on to say that so basically you have this some Iranian officials were surprised by this. And then it goes on and it's basically a defense of the Biden administration. Uh, well,
1: that was the purpose of the piece, okay? right? Like, well, I'm sure the intelligence officials they were talking to. And we know from the past 10 years that these guys are not politically well, I'm going to take a gander. They're not politically neutral people. But at the same time, like giving these guys the benefit of the doubt, I wanted to bookmark these and see how these stories age.
2: Former President Donald J. Trump and other Republicans tried to cast blame on Mr. Biden. I think they succeeded in casting it. They they cast it. Yeah,
1: this is a problem.
2: On Mr. Biden saying that those funds helped to finance the assault. But that $6 billion is not U.S. taxpayer money. Oh, as Mr. Trump and others falsely noted, Donald Trump lied. What? I don't buy it. Nor is there evidence that the money, which officials have said is subject to Treasury Department oversight, was used to finance the attacks. And this just this felt like this felt like beat sweetening for Jake Sullivan, a chance to for the administration to say, oh, we know it's Iran, but it definitely wasn't this money.
1: That they were totally unified and on message saying that over the weekend. Yes. I did want to highlight. A couple of pieces I thought were remarkably bad. A couple of pieces and some coverage that I thought was remarkably bad. I and mean, there, there's been so much good stuff coming out. But the the head of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, had a, an interesting moment on MSNBC. And I,
2: I flag this because you in the past have have had some criticism of the ADL and Greenblatt. Yes,
1: definitely have had criticism. He's, he's too soft for my liking. Uh, but he... <laughs> And by the way, I would have gone beyond this criticism, which which I'll mention. But Greenblatt tore into MSNBC when he was on Morning Joe. And let's play that clip.
2: I love this show and I love this network. But I've got
0: to ask, who is writing the scripts? Hamas? Hamas? Boy, would they wish that those same Israelis who were out there protesting the so-called judicial reforms would be protesting Israel's inhumane treatment of the uh, Palestinians who live under Israeli occupation. But that's just not something that's happening. It's basically like living, Alex, in an open-air prison. You have people in there and innocent bystanders they will be involved in it, but at the same time, it's its like, you know, what other choice do they have? The people who did this, they are not fighters, Jonathan.
1: 160 people were killed Saturday by Hamas fighters. Were Hamas
0: fighters of Hamas fighters. Hamas fighters. They are not militants. Uh, Hamas militants. They, while fighting Hamas militants, the militants, several thousand ha- Hamas militants. So I'm looking right at the camera. They are terrorists. It is a barbarian who rapes and brutalizes women. And what we're seeing today are very deadly consequences of failed policies, failure on the American administration's part to change yep. course, failure on Israel's part. Who te- kills children in front of their parents. And this is a very, very big gift for Benjamin Netanyahu.
2: And then brings them over to Gaza who literally we've heard all these reports and we know
0: these aren't just reports these were filmed this is just the beginning in terms of the retaliation for gaza
1: now i would have added there there were most of the television footage that we're seeing is just like bombs flying in the night right. of this or it's soldiers saying this is what i saw and i've wondered there are a couple of clips that we've seen that are not gruesome but that were recorded by Hamas that do bring home what these guys are doing. One was of a little boy being bullied and he's just standing there being pushed around by by Hamas. And the other was of a family being taken hostage with two kids, that they are hostage, yeah. with two kids saying they saw their third sibling be murdered. And there's no blood or gore in these. And I've I've wondered, and, and had I been in Greenblatt's place, tell them, you guys need to be showing this stuff. This is what's happening. And I do think the, the footage of just bombs flying in the night, it's reminiscent of previous conflicts. And right. I think that the network should be showing this footage that shows this is different. This is what these people are doing. I understand, you know, like the networks wouldn't air people jumping out and, and they, they won't air the world, the Twin Once Towers falling yeah. or people jumping out of the buildings. They have policies, but there's plenty of stuff they can air that I think gets at this that they aren't airing. So I would have gone beyond Greenblatt. See-
2: but. TV is TV is hard on this because in in print digital media, you can put a, a graphic or disturbing image and it stays there and people can go back and look at it if they want to. But they see it. It has its power on TV, especially 24 hour TV. How often do you keep showing? I agree with you that uh, images of the night sky with flashes in it and the sound of of explosions or the. um uh, aerial footage provided by the uh, IDF doesn't bring home the same thing. But figuring out how often and how much to show this—the the really disturbing images that you see, even when they're not gory—the really disturbing and unsettling images is hard, and it's it's hard to find that balance. But I agree with you that they need to be shown, and people have to understand what they're dealing with—not uh, a sanitized remote control warfare.
1: And it- it brings to mind, I mean, President Biden, in his remarks yesterday, compared Hamas to ISIS. Mm-hmm. And it was the beheadings that brought home to yep. the American people the nature of that enemy. And I think in the same way, when people see this, it does have a real impact. And and by the way, Hamas wanted people to see this. Yeah. Um, they're proud of it.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: And you look, we, we said, oh, you know, there's unity in this country, this, that, and the other. But- There are lawmakers who are cheering this on, you know, a handful of them. And I think it's useful seeing these images to see exactly what they're defending. The other piece that struck me as bizarre and indefensible was the the main piece when you went to the Politico website on Monday morning was an interview with Bernie Sanders, foreign policy advisor who has been one of Hamas's chief apologists for the past 10 years. And the headline was, we've been shaken out of this fantasy, colon, how the left sees the war in Israel. I thought it was incredibly strange to have this be your main news piece. There was absolutely no pushback on any on anything he said. And this was one exchange. Alex Burns interviewed Matt Dust, the the former Sanders foreign policy advisor. Burns says, you just mentioned the painful reality check on the way the foreign est- policy establishment tends to think about the Palestinian issue. Do you think there's a larger credibility issue at stake here for what's considered establishment foreign policy thinking? The notion that the last few years have been movement in the direction of stability and in terms of American interest, progress in the neighborhood. And Duss responds, it has destroyed this whole premise that we can just bottle up the Palestinians and it won't matter. It has destroyed the premise once again, and it's not the first time that we've been shaken out of this fantasy that we can invest in repression. We can invest in relationships with governments that imprison their own people and deliver security and stability. It may work for a little while, but it will not work forever, and when it erupts, it's extremely dangerous and tragic.
2: When I saw that quote in the headline, I assumed that the fantasy that they had been shaken out of was that Hamas could be a partner in peace. No. Oh, Um, and this is what
1: we've seen here. And there's no there's no pushback at any point in the interview. And what? I thought it was shameful and strange.
2: That is that is super lame. Wow. Jeez Louise. The uh, the the what I have been meditating on in this stuff is stories like this that break through the normal barriers. And we saw the same thing with Ukraine. Stories that break through the normal barriers, the bubbles that people erect around themselves politically, often reveal how isolated people have become in their thinking. Right. So for most Americans, they don't think about Israel and Palestine. And they don't think about that. They don't think about Palestinians and Israelis on a day to day basis for most of the 330 million plus Americans, it's just not part of what they're thinking about on an, and it's not part of the news most days. And then when something like this happens, the as folks who are normally consuming local news, let's talk about viewers, uh, people who consume local news, maybe some news online aren't engaged that much in day-to-day political or national news. When something like this breaks through, their reaction is going to be obvious. Who are these insane people? Who are, the, who are these devils who are killing young people at a festival, who are kidnapping people's grandmothers, who are beheading children? Who are these people? This is, this is outrageous. But if you live in a bubble, like those kids at Harvard who put out their statements condemning Israel for being attacked, basically, if you live in the bubble that this person, what's his name, Matt Duss, if you live in a, a news bubble where you're only getting reinforced and you don't know how other people think, you are not going to be able to see the forest for the trees. You're not so you that's I'm always making the case for diversifying your news inputs and hearing other voices and expanding your horizons. Here's a great example of how stupid it can make you if you're not if you don't broaden your horizons.
1: Just so that lest our listeners think our criticism is limited to the left, I, I have to say that I nothing outraged me so much this week than Tucker Carlson's interview with Vivek Ramaswamy, which I sent it to a few people, and they said I I started watching this but couldn't get to the end. I watched the whole thing, and I wanted to play a couple of clips from that. Let's let's take a listen.
0: I, I got to say you you mentioned moral outrage, and I, and I thought the videos from southern Israel were morally outrageous and I I was offended by them and and saddened by them. Uh, Anyone who saw them I think was. Um, But you don't have to look far in the United States for moral outrages also on video. And there's not a city in this country, not just the big cities, but cities of 10,000 people. I was in one yesterday. that doesn't have some constellation of drug addicted young people living outside. We call them the homeless, they're drug addicts. And they're addicted to drugs that were imported across an open border. Allowed by the Biden administration, and they're dying more than a hundred thousand a year. Now, you could call it genocide, you can call it whatever you want, but it's the death of over a hundred thousand Americans a year and the living death of millions more who are living outside. So sure. I, I don't understand. People are outraged by what happened in Israel, and again, I, I want to add my voice to that because I'm a human being.
2: If I can just say from a politics standpoint, this is why Vivek Ramaswamy is heading out. This is this is this is why he's he's going down. Because, again, of media bubbles and media echo chambers, when you live in this very online space and you hear only reinforcing things, you think that this is the time to say, well, you know, it's um, opioids. What about what about opioids? It's so goofy and it's so disconnected and it's
1: uh... To, to draw an equivalence between what Israel is facing, the the attempted genocide happening in the Middle East and opioid overdoses that people are inflicting on themselves is so morally disgusting and backward. It is revealing about these people. It is revealing about a a trend in the Republican Party. We know it's in the Democratic Party. We've seen the responses from Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. They have elected members of Congress. It exists in the Republican Party, too. And I hope and expect this to come up in the next Republican presidential debate and and hope it is a rising matter of public attention and concern that these are loud voices in our politics.
2: Opinions to have uh, opinions, as I always say, are luxury items, don't have more than you can afford. And one of the tendencies that we have with our opinions is that whatever event, when we have our opinions, whatever events transpire, we want to shoehorn them into that. Just take it as it comes.
1: This is, I mean, this is a deliberate minimization of an attempted wiping out of the Jewish people and the the only Jewish state. Yeah. Chris, you sent this a little bit of a lighter item. And, you know, it's funny when I've, some of my colleagues, when I've said, oh, like, can I make a joke or can I, can I pass on gossip? They've said, please.
2: Please. Um, We we
1: need some lighter stuff. So we're going to move into that.
2: So Jeff Maurer, who has the, I might be wrong, Substack and podcast. You should be his mascot. Well, he's he can be very, very good. And this is a really good format for him. And he wrote this parody, parodic advice for how to take advantage to your political benefit, a headline, how to use the massacre in Israel to your political advantage. What's in this for you? All caps, question mark. And he goes through and and finds people like Jennifer Rubin finds Rona, Romney McDaniel, finds Corey Bush, finds a bunch of people left and right. So here's tip four. Use faint or even non-existent connections to tie noxious, noxious idiots to the political party you oppose. Useful for partisan hacks, media, arm, media arms for partisan hacks. And talks here about how the backlash and the front lash and how at each turn, people in the media and politics are trying to exploit this for their advantage. Here's his conclusion. Of course, pretending that the fringiest freak you can find represents the beating heart of your political opposition is a tried and true political tactic. The Israeli Palestinian conflict attracts extremists, so chances to tie your opponents to some frothing at the mouth mutant should abound. It should be, in the words of one notable hack, a great opportunity. And I really appreciated this because he used his his effective lens at finding the people who were on the grind, trying to make the most of this moment for themselves, uh, rather than reacting to it like a human being.
1: Chris, this, oh, yeah, was, one of those. this was amusing.
2: Well, what, to, to set it up, one of those people <laughs> was Tim Scott, who has his presidential campaign went from full of potential to stalled to now hacky. And there were troubling signs for him of his hackiness in, we talked about here last week, going after Nikki Haley for the draperies when she was the United Nations, ambassador to the United Nations, and that component from their debate. He has, looking for a way to revitalize his campaign, has decided that he will take a backseat to nobody in blaming Joe Biden and his refrain about Joe Biden is that Joe Biden has blood on his hands. Now, look, there's a lot of things that Republicans are going to say about Joe Biden in this and about the billions of dollars that were unfrozen and made available and about the all the things that we just discussed with the loosening of the sanctions and all, all fair, all fair comment. But Joe Biden doesn't have blood on his hands. He didn't murder anybody. He didn't want anybody to be murdered. And this was sor- sort of a this this was a, a, a another signpost on the road to what's happening to Tim Scott as he tries to run for president. And George Will ha- this should
1: have been my favorite item.
2: George, so, so George Will has a, a column in The Washington Post headline, Tim Scott, please drop out and urge others to follow and unite behind Haley. And as we have talked about, Haley and Scott occupy the same space in the Republican electorate, not just because they're both from the same early primary state, but they're going for the same traditional conservative Republican voters. They're also competing against each other in Iowa. And there is a a pairing there that has to be re- that will be resolved at some point to the benefit of one or the other.
1: And there is a real look. I'm under no illusion that I don't live in an establishment bubble, but there is a real sense of urgency that this the Republican field needs to shrink, and that there needs to be one option and make this a Trump or non-Trump race. Yeah, and everybody I talk to is just wants to see people start dropping out of this race. Well, and
2: and right now Nikki Haley has momentum. Right, right now Nikki Haley, and and the events of last week and the ongoing war help Nikki Haley her standing in the eyes of Republicans. When foreign policy is important, having foreign policy experience becomes a good thing. And it is a a, a a good coincidence for Haley that it occurs as she has been moving forward, especially in New Hampshire, taking big vote share away from Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and moving up and, and trying to get into second place there. And the pressure on Scott becomes very explicit from George Will, who says, There is national incredulity, exhaustion, embarrassment, disgust, and fatalism about the political party's inability to generate palatable presidential choices. Word. Tim Scott could alter this with a trifecta of statesmanlike acts, withdrawing from the competition for the Republican presidential nomination, challenging others to do likewise, and exhorting them to join him in supporting Nikki Haley. And Will makes a, a potent argument why this would be correct for Tim Scott to do that the conservative cause that will hold so dear would be well served by it and i think makes a pretty convincing argument but the best part maybe is the definitely dis- is the is the disclosure that is that is appended or i guess uh, i guess peers before the piece so george well's wife is a political consultant and a, she has worked for other people before and so george well over the years has had to put A disclaimer, a disclosure in his columns when his wife is working for somebody else. But go ahead and read this one. This is a different one.
0: The
1: disclosure is the columnist's wife, Mari Will, an advisor to Republican presidential candidate Senator Tim Scott, South Carolina, disagrees with this column.
2: (laughs) Chef's kiss. That's well done, Mr. Will. (laughs) Chef's kiss. Well done, Mr. and Mrs. Will.
1: Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about the coverage of the speaker race? I admit I have not been following this at all because I have only been following Israel coverage, and I'll hand it over to you. But my only thought about this, and the beacon has covered this Mm -hmm. race from this angle, is it does show you it would be good to have a functioning House of Speaker of the House and a functioning House of Representatives right now, and there are real costs to what well, the renegade yeah. Republicans, along with all of the House Democrats did. All of these people claim to support Israel, which days after they booted Kevin McCarthy, went into an existential crisis. And there are House members upping bills right now that cannot get passed. And there you know, there are costs to this.
2: So Nancy Mace, who is now evidently just a goofball, who is not previously previously was goofball. These people are
1: unserious. So she
2: she so she wore a Scarlet A, which is for adultery in the Scarlet Letter. She wore the Scarlet Letter A drawn on a camisole to go to the House of Representatives because she says she's wearing the Scarlet Letter because as a woman. She dared stand up to the political establishment, which, of course, is convenient because we now no longer have to ever think about Nancy Mace as a serious person ever again. We're 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 off the hook when it comes to considering Nancy Mace. But how do you think Nancy Mace would have voted if the speaker if the motion to vacate the chair was happening this week as opposed to before Hamas attacked? Exactly. How? I, and,
1: and Matt Gates wants to run for governor of Florida. Right. Uh, I hear there are a lot of Jews there.
2: And the idea that the, the unseriousness of the fight within the Republican Party is, of course, made manifest by and, – and, and here's another thought experiment. Not only do I think that Kevin McCarthy would have not been evicted or that the vote might not even have been held if it were now, right – think about what coverage so we we're, we're recording this as the house republicans are convening they have convened Nate Moore will be monitoring and by the way it's sweater season Colin Chicola is here in a sweater Nate Moore still rocking linen still it's a twi- it's a twi- it's a light twill it's it's a heather twill it's a light twill Autumn is here and Nate Moore is behind. Well, he's in cords, but he's I feel like Collins more fall forward. And
1: you didn't even mention me in my vest. I
2: like your vest. I think you look you you look like you're about to walk across the quad to go. <laughs> you look like you're about to walk just across.
1: Channeling youth.
2: Just walk across the quad to go in and 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 go in. Meet to, with the prof. To meet with the prof for office hours and have a matcha latte. So the dispatch, I will say, does a really good job of this, walking and chewing gum at the same time, covering these things. But how would coverage of today's speaker vote in Behind Closed Doors Among Republicans be different today if it were not for the conflict in the Middle East, if it were not for this war? This would be wall to wall wall to wall. And Matt Gaetz would be getting everything that he wanted, every whisper, every utterance, what's the latest from Matt Gates? and all of that stuff. But because of the war, there's no it's it's happening basically in a vacuum. And again, I do want to praise dispatch the dispatch politics team for keeping us abreast of it and doing it with a 30,000 foot view that has been very useful. But I also want to praise today something I did not think that I would I would be saying punch bowl news, which is too insidery generally for my to be useful to me and what they're selling is for lobbyists and staff and people in congress to really obsess over. But man, as I was trying to wrap my head around how this vote was going to be, Punchbowl News broke it down in a way that Axios could only dream of. It was it was so useful for me to see how it goes and I was reminded of having multiple sources for multiple occasions. Sometimes you want to dive deep and Punchbowl did a really good job about explaining how and this is uh, as Jonah would say, complicated without the benefit of being interesting. There's a vote before the vote that's going to take place that I was struggling to understand how it would go, and they laid it out. And it was really useful. So thank you, Punchbowl News.
1: Who is your money on?
2: I mean, I, if I had a hundred bucks to bet, I'd put eighty bucks on Steve Scalise. Will Colin will cut that out if if he if he fails? I just think it will be very hard for Jim Jordan to get there because Republicans know what a horror show the the next the the stretch between here and the election would be for them because jordan is totally undisciplined he has been really good at sucking up to kevin mccarthy and leadership to try to get to where he is but you can imagine how many shutdowns you can imagine how much crazy stuff and you can also imagine the hunter biden uh, absolute the the absolute fixation on Hunter Biden that would overtake the House at a moment where you want where House Republicans are very eager to demonstrate that they have the capacity to govern.
1: Let me ask the following. Yes. Is there any chance that some establishment folks get behind Scalise or get behind Jordan because it would be more difficult to portray him as, a, as an establishment tool and they would have more stable leadership for a longer time?
2: I think persuadable if, if well, it depends on what you want. If you if the worse, the better is the idea that you make it so bad that ultimately the Republican Party kicks out the kooks and and their status inside the conference is reduced.
1: And Jordan's done an interesting two-step over the past few years. I mean, he became a real McCarthy ally.
2: Yeah, totally. The sucking up was real. I, I think that if, and it will depend on this vote, whether they have to get to 217 votes inside the conference or whether they can do what they used to do, which is if you get a majority of the, the, the conference, then you take it to the floor. Chip Roy and Brian Fitzpatrick, um, the, a moderate Republican, both say, no, we have to finish this inside, and we'll report back next week on how that all went. But I just think that if it's not Scalise, I, Elise Stefanik is somebody who makes sense because she is from the establishment but has spent a lot of time sucking up to the nationalists. And that's a. There are more mainstream Republicans than there are nationalists or MAGA Republicans. So that. So she's one, but they could also exhaust themselves, right? If they can't get there, they may end up. Matt Ga- Matt Gates may end up with getting a, a a caretaker speaker of the Denny Hastert mold rather than a more nationalistic or MAGA speaker that he said he wanted. Because they may exhaust themselves in conference, and eventually somebody like Tom Cole from Oklahoma, or somebody who people would say, oh, "Look, let's just be done here and move on." I think that's true. But Scalise, as much as as much as Team McCarthy may sort of rue the fact that Scalise will finally inherit what he's been angling for for so long, sometimes to the detriment of Kevin McCarthy. I think that I think that looks still like the the most likely thing by a pretty wide margin.
1: Chris. That leads us to our quick report on the news business.
2: Yeah, what happened? Which is is
1: that the Washington Post is slashing its staff. They are planning to lay off about 240 people. Uh. And I believe that's of about 1,500 reporters. And they had a $100 million loss. And my takeaway from this is that, I mean, even Jeff Bezos can't make money in the news business.
2: Yeah, but quit trying just yep. spend it, baby. Let it, feel, it feels so good.
1: And, exactly. So we have that. And then our style and food sections. Yes. We each have an item. Yes. Chris.
2: This is, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't pick on these kinds of lists and I shouldn't pick on Orlando. I shouldn't. Orlando, the Indianapolis of Florida. I should not. I should not do that. And yet, Uh, Because I saw this cited and posted, and and so here's the the, what what lists and stories like these are 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 catnip for social media for for mentioning in your story and trying to push out for social media hits the best foodie cities in America 2023, and this is from Wallet Hub, and I don't know what Wallet Hub is, but I see Wallet Hub cited constantly. Wallet Hub may be a family of raccoons living under a porch somewhere with ai i don't know i don't know what wallet hub is but it gets cited a lot as if it was a thing and here's <laughs> so they did their list and we've done lists like this before we've talked about lists like this before of uh, you know and this is not the excellent kind of reporting that the new york times did on hot dog on, on the hot dogs of america but instead the best state for this or the best state for that or whatever whatever and here it is the best food cities <laughs> <laughs> the best food cities in america orlando florida portland oregon i mean you know whatever sacramento california absolutely not it's, uh, sacramento california is absolutely not w- the third best food city in america miami florida yes san francisco yes tampa no i i there's good food to be had in tampa but tampa is not a better food city than washington dc it's not a better food city than boston it's not a better food city than new orleans louisiana and it is most assuredly not a better food city than new york new york is the best food city in the country because it has so many people and it has so many rich people and it has so much of everything and so i would just tell everyone when you see a list that includes san diego california as the seventh best food city in new york and that it is ahead of, and I like San Diego, but when San Diego is 10 spots better than Washington, D.C., here's a clue that you may be dealing with a flawed line.
1: Mine is, I watched The Golden Matchler.
2: Oh, and no. I am here to no. report back. Um, all
1: right, this was my last night of leisure because okay. it was Friday night, and this war broke out Saturday. And my husband was in Las Vegas parting his tushy really off. Yes, he went to some football game. I don't know. My husband was in no, Las Vegas. no the Raiders. The some college football game
2: in Las Vegas. We're going well, to Let me, ask, check let me ask him we're, before. We're, beg, we're, I, I, um, I, I, Patrick, Patrick, I'm sorry if I'm if i if I'm get, if I'm getting you in trouble to, here.
1: And, yeah, I also asked him like. Uh, you know, did you hit up any strip clubs? Whoa. Did you, what did you do? So
2: College football okay, in right, Las Vegas. I'll report back. Okay. The UNLV um, running Rebels.
1: I'm just going to say reporting on the podcast. <laughs> the listeners want to know.
2: Maybe he went to watch one. Maybe the idea was that he and his friends. It,
1: they definitely did that. Maybe he and his um, friends
2: wanted to watch it. By the way, the I, I
1: did Park. this with him on in for the NCAA Final Four. Okay. Or we did Sweet 16, and it was so much fun. I mean, we Vegas. We had such a blast.
2: I mean, it's not as good of a food city as Orlando, but yes, Vegas does have had, some good places yes, to go. Yes.
1: So, Friday night, Home Alone, watch The Golden Bachelor. It is great. No. It is great. It's bad. Um, the guy is a total dork. He's really good looking, but a total dork. He's from and where?
2: He's from Iowa, India. He,
1: he's from, India. yeah, he's from the Colin. Midwest. <laughs> Colin, and then,
2: Colin I mean, is like in.
1: Oh, didn't go to a game. Okay. Uh, okay. His report is didn't go to a game, just watched and gambled on them at a casino Saturday and Sunday.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. All right.
1: So, Golden Bachelor, it's enjoyable. This is- he, a,
2: Just just for he context, America. seems like America. a decent just, human just being. Just for context, he's, America. He's a widower. This is a decent human being. there's lots of
1: widows on the show, and This is a decent human cute. being.
2: This is a decent human being who, at age 71 or whatever, agreed to be tested for sexually transmitted okay. diseases- so that he could appear on a television show. And can I just... Nah, I don't know. I, I just, don't know. Can I just
1: jump ahead to a piece of reader mail? Yes. Reader mail from Christian Costa. Oh, writes, yes, my friend. Hey, wretches. Yes, she's Christian so great. Christian Costa here from over the pond in London. I had the pleasure of working with Chris at Fox, and I very rarely disagree with his commentary on just about <laughs> any matter. But I have to say he is absolutely wrong about The Golden Bachelor. I watched the first two episodes, and that's what I watched. I watched the first two episodes this weekend, and I loved it. To see people want to fall in love again in their 60s and 70s is so fun. To see women aging gracefully, Gracefully. remaining confident, and supporting each other is good content we could all use. I hope Eliana agrees, and while I doubt he has time or interest, I wish Chris would give it a try. I look forward to listening to both of you each week. You really do make the news fun and interesting, where I could otherwise, it could other- otherwise feel very dark and overwhelming. You should both feel so proud of the work you do. Retch on.
2: Christian Costa, that is not aging gracefully. And I love Christian. She is a, just a, a peach, and I. she was so helpful to me at Fox, and she is a, a very promising and enterprising young woman who will make a great success of herself. But I will tell you this. Aging gracefully does not involve what these women are doing. T- <laughs> Grace- gracefully is not is not the term. But I want you to know, I the boys and I were at dinner last night at just a neighborhood place, and there was an older couple, and by older I mean older than me. There was an older couple there on what was pretty obviously a first date, and they had, they were tanned. They were. Their faces, their faces were firm, I'll, I'll say, and they were wearing expensive athleisure attire, right? So I would guess that these were people maybe, I'll say, 60 or so, and they were dressed for sports, but very clearly not going to participate in sports. And they were very fit and well put together, and they were clearly on a first date or a very, very early days of the date. And you know what I did? I picked up their check.
1: That is so lovely
2: because it takes courage to go do that, and I'm for them. I'm. I didn't tell them I was going to pick up their check, and I. I. I did. Th- I did so anonymously, but I think it takes courage to go out and do it. But again,
1: anonymous cr- no more. If they're listeners of this podcast,
2: they didn't look like they were probably stained Wretch's listeners. I would. I. I. I would say. I would say fitness and golf. Maybe. Oh, they're probably listening to a pickleball podcast right now, and we wish them well. But that is one thing and i'm all for it looking for love in all the right places on the patio at mama's kitchen but the it is not graceful if the if the participants must be tested for sexually transmitted diseases before undertaking any encounter this is not the sign of graceful aging
1: all right chris that brings us to our obsessions of the week where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads and in the interest of time mm-hmm. and because my obsession was the war, I'm going to turn it over to you and we will move on to favorite items.
2: Well, I just, my, my obsession is the, and I, w- I will not belabor it because I wrote a whole column about it, which we will link in the show notes so that you can read it. But I think everybody has now heard of deaths of despair and the research done by a pair of Princeton, sorry, Nate, researchers who were the ones in a 2015 paper identified that the lowered life expectancy for basically middle age, middle class white dudes. And this was a unified, there was a unified field theory here in which this explained Donald Trump. And in my research, looking at how this had been tied to these discussions. The Washington Post, with characteristic restraint uh, in talking about these matters, had a headline that was something like, how deaths predict uh, where people will vote for Donald Trump. And so this was the idea was, and it was very much like the 1960s, poor whites, we feel bad for them, but they're a big problem, right? Because in those days, it was that they weren't supporting racial integration and they weren't supporting the end of the Vietnam War. This time, it's they're backing Donald Trump and they're against progressive goals. So- the, the work of Case and Deaton, it's a husband and wife pair at Princeton, was useful for a period of time in helping us understand how bad the opioid crisis really was. It was really helpful to see how hard it had hit. But as they have continued to try to extrapolate these views out into policy solutions, right, because you, nobody wants to be the one who says, wow, look at this amazingly sad thing. See you later. If you're an academic, you if you're a policy person, you want a policy that will do it. And they're out with a new report. And it was basically, it's right, but it's it's just wrong. Because what they're saying is, oh, look, it's the divide at college. The real difference here is college. And if, if the people who don't go to college are dying so much sooner and it fetishizes college, and it makes it seem like college is this vehicle out of these problems. Solid standing in the upper middle class of the United States is a great place to be. Being from a family, living in a household with a solidly middle, upper middle class, if you're in the, you know third quintile and above, is a great place to be in the world. And below that, uh, it's really tough. It can get really, really tough. And college can, for individual people, college can be a vehicle to great success. And I know a lot of people who were first generation in their family to go to college. They took advantage of the many pathways that we have to college in the United States, and it was a great story for them. But generally speaking, what college, what in a college education is, and I think I could just, I could sum this all up by saying, read Charles Murray's Coming Apart, Right. Just it's read, a wonderful book. Just read Charles Murray's *Coming Apart*. If you if you want to, th- and he wrote that before Case and Deaton's work came out, he did this way Highly before recommend. Donald Trump. He did this way before whatever. Read Charles Murray's *Coming Apart* because he just looks he looks at white America 1960 to 2010 and he talks about what happened. And college is a big part of what happened because it wasn't that college changed the people; it was that college sorted the people. And that the people stopped. My parents were very typical of America at one point. My dad had a college degree. My mom did not. That was not a very uncommon. They got married in the late 1950s. That was not an uncommon thing at all in the late 1950s, especially for men to have gone to college and women not to have gone to college. That was very normal. It doesn't happen anymore, right? People with college, people who go to college marry other people who go to college. And the coming apart, the pulling apart of elite Americans into their special class and the resulting carnage there...
1: And women going to work. Yes. Which means the pairing up of professional women and professional yes. men and the sorting of that.
2: Yes. And the and this massive pulling apart. College is, had the the increase in college going rate. And a majority of Americans still are not college diplomats and diplomates. And the majority of Americans, it, It's this will change over the next decade or so with the baby boomers passing on. But... This is still mostly a not college country, but the elite is uniformly college, right? Almost uniformly college. And that top 20% is pulling itself further away from the 80%. And the consequences, as you allude to, are really dire for the 80%.
1: And the college leads to different sorts of sorting. It leads to having kids later, living in different cities, doing different professions, making more money. and leads to people leading... completely different lifestyles living in different cultures having different values and essentially the book is about the creation of two different countries within one country
2: and and it was all there and to to watch this effort that is finally and it got so close there was a, a yasha monk piece and they were so close they were right on the three yard line but they couldn't get to the final thing which is college has changed the way americans live not it's not about how they learn or what your skills you get or, or what happens to you at college. It is that it is fundamentally reshaped American cultural life. And the people who go to college manage to maintain the kind of value, typically America's elites. And this is David Brooks's work in uh, Bobo's in Paradise, too. And so it made me mad. So I wrote a whole thing about it. And now I'll inflict it on you, America.
1: And I did want to note that we had a very thoughtful letter that we will read next week from Paul R. in Idaho. We hear you, Paul. Yes, we will get to it next week. But now it is time for your favorite time of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice, but you will lead by example.
2: One of I have one son who loves sports, who is a sporto. To the core, he can tell you all of the batting statistics, all of, he can give you the odds for every game. He, he lives there. And I have another son who couldn't have, he, he could not have cared less about sports, but has, for some reason, come to embrace, I guess this is uh, correct for him, Bundesliga soccer and Formula One, (laughs) Formula One racing. So it is to my eldest man child that I owe thanks for this piece on yuki snoda okay sorry mr snoda which was this really interesting look into formula racing and really interesting look into this guy who's like the bad boy and he's defying the stereotypes about polite nice japanese people by being rude crude vulgar and all this stuff and it turns out it's really it's really well written and really engaging and
1: Well can you read the quote from him it's so funny
2: Oh yes okay The pressure was on let's see I'll read it Okay you go ahead
1: In the wildly popular Netflix series Formula 1 Drive to Survive Mr. Tsunoda was shown farting, being lackadaisical about strength training and announcing, I want to go first poo before a massage. So I'm tuning in. Golden Bachelor, you're gonna have to take a back seat.
2: That's right, that's right, I dig it.
1: I mentioned this last week, but I wanted to give a plug to Robert Novak's book, Prince of Darkness, which I have been reading. It is fantastic and it brings home, Robert Novak wrote, a, an opinion column, a reported opinion column for several decades, and it really underscores how important reporting is as a foundation of writing opinion and how important talking to people, traveling, getting Word. out. And informing yourself is because I meet so many young people who want to sit behind their computer screens and write opinion. Get out of your bubble. And you really, really see in this memoir how well he knew politicians. He traveled to Vietnam to see the war and talk to the American officials who were running the war. And at the beginning, he writes, for the sober-sided younger generations of journalists, having fun may seem unserious. But I had a terrific time fulfilling all my youthful dreams and at the same time making life miserable for hypocritical posturing politicians and, I hope, performing a service for my country.
2: Yay. So
1: thought that was a wonderful note to end on. Break
2: out of your bubble, people.
1: That is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been ink wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Shikola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review. Six. Just search for wretches.